Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we have another special guest speaker. Jim Schoberg and his wife, Debbie, have been missionaries with Avant for several years, most recently serving in France. Jim will be sharing from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and a message entitled, It's All About Who? We encourage you to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 and follow along. We, uh, we worked in Ecuador for a number of years, and Debbie is a missionary kid from Peru and Colombia, and worked in, as a single in Bolivia before we were married. And so back in uh, 2005, when we left Ecuador, we had had a number of years of experience in ministry and we're being asked to go to Paris, France. Um, I can't tell you what a huge change it was, not just linguistically, but culturally, and going from a continent where if you talk to somebody about God and Jesus Christ, you're using the same language. Um, People are quite receptive in Latin America to going to a place that was extremely secular and is. I can't, uh, it's hard for me to put into words how much God has developed us as as his followers in the midst of wanting to shine for him. And that's probably a good way to just introduce to this morning's message that, say, what is the main purpose of my message? Is it to give you a challenge? Yes. For missions? Absolutely. Um, But it's also to encourage you that God is developing you. Uh, Those first few years before we had any regular group meeting, we attended an international church in Paris that was from a church tradition where they they actually recited the Apostles' Creed. I'm from a Baptist background. I grew up in a church that was a Baptist General Conference church. Uh, Most of the churches I'm associated with are similar. I had never been in a church that had much liturgy or creeds. But I will tell you that when we recited the Apostles' Creed, declaring who God is, it really meant something to us those days. Because we realized that the vast majority of the thousands of people we lived among in a very well-to-do suburb of Paris um, either didn't believe God existed or would say we don't know, but was really, if you want to say the state religion, it's really secularism. I remember a study we did um, in the book of Job. Uh, I was reading it through with a friend named Benji. And one day, I mean, we would talk about the reading. And one day he asked me, he said, Jim, uh, let me ask you a question. And he says, can I ask you a question? I said, Benji, you can ask me any question you want. He said, you're following Christ, you're calling yourself a Christian. Is that for your good or is it for his glory? Have you had anyone anyone ask you a question like that? I thought, you know, that's actually a very good question. If somebody asked you, why do you follow Christ? What does it really mean to be a Christian? What is this whole thing all about? How would you answer them? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a passage of scripture. I'm going to weave in some stories from the field, um, but I would like you to join me in discovering what a passage says, a passage of scripture in Colossians chapter 1. 
And what I'll do is I have questions I'm going to ask you. And actually, I've written some answers, but we're not going to put those answers up there until we get some feedback. So, yeah, I have a goal of challenging, of encouraging us to discover, and also of keeping us awake this morning. So join me. I'm just going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump into Colossians chapter 1. Lord, we uh, thank you for the privilege of being here and opening your word. I just ask that your word would be clear to us, that your Holy Spirit would illumine us uh, to what you're wanting to say in your word, that we would lock in and pay attention to what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned uh, secularism would be the state religion in France. Um, the latest book I have uh, from Tim Keller. Uh, I don't know if you ever read a book called uh, The Reason for God. They, they, someone asked him if this is a sequel because it's written after, but he says actually it, it should have been written before, uh, Making Sense of God. And in the preface, he writes, um, he's talking about, he says, uh, there are at least three ways the word secular could be used. One applies the term to a social and political structure, a secular society, in one, is one in which there is separation of religion and state. No religious faith is privileged by the government and the most powerful cultural institutions. Secular, number two, secular may also be used to describe individuals. A secular person is one who does not know if there is a God or any supernatural realm beyond the natural world. Everything in this view has a scientific explanation. And the third, finally, the term may describe a particular kind of culture with its themes and narratives. A secular age is one in which all individuals, all, emphasis, all the emphasis is on the seculum, on the here and now, without any concept of the eternal. Meaning in life, guidance, and happiness are understood and sought in present day time, economic prosperity, material comfort, and emotional fulfillment. Um, I would say that all three of those uh, definitions would apply to France, but I think especially that last one, the here and now, um, people's lives center around the circumstances, and their happiness also depend on those circumstances. We may find that actually quite true in America today, too. Um, so look at what we're going to do is, I explained in Sunday school that what we did is we did a discovery Bible study with people, and we specifically went towards people we knew weren't believers. We didn't gather believers. We thought, let's put the gospel, how can we put the gospel out there to people that are not believers? Those are our target. And uh, I kind of explained how we came to the conclusion of using what we call Discovery Bible Study. And if you have a program, you might, if you keep, uh, take notes, and even if you don't, at least you can see the questions. What we're gonna do is we're going to read through the passage and maybe more than once, and we're going to answer these questions. And the question, first question is, what does this passage teach about God and his plan? The second, what does this passage teach about mankind? And the, the third, what is this passage saying to me about my situation? And the fourth question, with whom can I share what I've learned today? So, I need your help. We're going to discover in this passage what it's saying about each of these questions. I know you don't have a mic, but if you give me an answer, I will try to repeat back for those who might not be able to hear you of what you said. So let's read the passage together. It's on the screen, and it's from the NIV, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
I'll explain a little of the context. Uh, some types of heresies were moving in. Paul's concerned about those heresies. They were based somewhat, it seems to be a little bit on a Jewish tint and uh, uh, leaning where people were saying traditions uh, matter, what you do matters for salvation. Paul knew that if he didn't address certain things, uh, the gospel could be diluted. So he is talking in 15 through 20 and he says this, Paul says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's a lot there. But if I were to ask you that first question, what does this passage teach about God and his plan? What could some of the answers you give me would be? Let's look at that together. What do we learn about God and his plan in this passage? Say it again. Okay, reconciliation comes through Christ. Very good. And that's part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. What else? And who is the creator in this passage? God? Jesus. Jesus is God. The Trinity was involved in creation. Very good. What else? See, I got all your names and I start calling on people. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, but. Okay. No beginning. He exists. What else? Very good. Keep on going. He's in charge. He's overall. He sustains things. Now, we're going to come back to this, but here, I want to try to, if we can get into the mind of somebody who's living in France, who discounts the existence of God. When I present Christianity, I know I have to go towards the cognitive. I know I have to present to them what the Bible says, and I know I have to satisfy the intellectual. When we did Bible studies, practically every week, what I would say We'd go through these questions together. And we'd always look at the text. And I'd remind them, the fact that I'm a pastor, that is not the authority. For this sake of this study, we are going to take the Bible at its word. It claims to be God's word. So our answers are coming to come from the Bible. Uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the study, you have to decide if you actually believe that or not. But for the sake of this study, we're going to find the answers in the Bible. And see, what I've done is I've given them an out. I have not imposed on them, you're going to believe this. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to use his word to convict and convince them. There's a lot in this text. And we could go to the next slide. And 
these are some of the things that I wrote down. If you look at this passage, you, you see that Jesus is Lord over creation, he's Lord over the church, and he's Lord over reconciliation. He's a perfect image of God the Father, verse 15. He's being firstborn means he's prior, prior, has priority. He's supreme over creation. It's, it's really all about him. He is the place and the craftsman of creation. Jesus is the ultimate goal of all creation, verse 16. Everything was created for him. And as was mentioned, he's the sustainer. What the Bible and Christianity says is that Jesus has authority over creation. It is all about him. Christianity makes that claim. Now you have to decide if you agree with that or not. But that's what the claim of the Bible is. I worked a job as a carpenter before I went out on the field. And I had no choice over the radio station that was being played. But I can remember it was WXRT. 93 FM in Chicago and they had a DJ in the afternoon I want to say her name was Peggy Sue but I can't remember I know it was something like that and she would constantly talk about malign Christianity make fun of Christ but then she'd say talk about how he doesn't exist and I remember thinking to myself you know I'm not I wouldn't really want to be argumentative with Peggy Sue but I, if I had one question, and I could call it, I would like to ask this question. If he doesn't exist, why do you have to talk about him all the time? See, the Bible and Christianity claims that it is all about Jesus. The creation, it's all about him. When we do this Bible study with people, that is understood. In fact, a friend of ours, when she studied this, she said, did you ever hear this in catechism growing up? I don't remember this, but you know what? This, we were studying Ephesians, it really is all about Jesus. Another thing it says in the passage is that Jesus is Lord over the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Headship means total dependence, close personal and living relationship. He has lordship over the church. Of course, over local bodies of believers, but over the church, the universal church. It also said that he's a Lord of reconciliation, that through his blood, Jesus had reconciled all who would trust in him and his conquering death on the cross. You cannot escape the fact that it's all about Jesus in the Bible. You can't go around him. You can't. If you claim to be a Christian, then you're accepting what the passage of this, this passage is saying, that it is all about Jesus not just kind of about Jesus, it's all about him. How many of you have run in marathons before? Anyone here? Long races? All right, I say marathoner. I've done three, and that's all I'm going to do. Uh, you know, marathons, it's like a subculture. You go these uh, runs, and people, you know, there are people like me, we're going to do it just because it's fun, and try and see if I can actually do it. Others are very serious. Very interesting outfits people wear. Uh, I've run next to Batman, Superman, um, guys in sub-zero weather that are wearing nothing but a Speedo, you know, everything. But the, my favorite was that one guy, a group of, of students from a local Christian group wore a t-shirt, and all it said on it on the back is, this is not about me. 
and it gave them an opportunity when people say, what is it about? And they said, you know, we're doing this because it's about Jesus. He saved us. He's given us his body. We're doing this for his glory. This passage is saying that it is all about Jesus. Let's go to the next question. Not the answers up on the screen quite yet. What does the passage teach me about mankind? The people who first read this, what would they have thought about themselves? What would they thought about mankind? If you look at the text, look at the text again. Maybe we can go back to the text again. Can we turn back? What is that passage saying about people, about mankind? Okay, we exist at God's pleasure. He's our creator. We were created for him, just like everything. What else? Okay, there's a need for us to be reconciled. So if we're needing to be reconciled, what does it say about our normal condition? Yeah. The people in this group were actually being sold by false teachers. If you do these things, you're going to be right with God. Not going to happen. You have to believe. You have to put your trust in Christ. Yeah. You can put my answers up there. Um, what did the first people who heard these words understand? Is uh, the question I asked, and it will be on that screen in a second. Um, if they knew Christ, they knew God the Father. Because they were part of creation, Jesus had the rights of lordship over them. As part of the church, Jesus had lordship rights over them. So Jesus has rights over mankind because of his creation. He has double rights over us as part of his church. And as always was mentioned, if we're going to be reconciled to God, the Father, it has to be through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that very clearly. Okay, so there's a passage. There's a number of things we've pointed out. And what we would do in the group is we would just let it settle there. I would spend more time than we did this morning and just let people answer as they want to. We actually had some lively discussion. In fact, what we had in our group is one guy who I would say is still really not a believer. He was almost like our text police. If somebody got off a beaten track, he'd say something like, you know, it's interesting, but I don't see in this passage where it says that. And he'd bring us back to the text. It's interesting, a lot of times God uses people who don't even believe in him in order to allow the Holy Spirit to work. But what we wanted people to do is discover for themselves what the text is saying. The other thing I'd like to share is that Europeans are cognitive. We as Americans are doers. You know, in theology class back at Moody Bible Institute, one of the things I remember and when we studied theology proper, study about God, is that we, being made in his image, three characteristics that he's given us that make us different is that we have a will, 
we have an ability to reason and we have emotion. And by God's graciousness and love, we've had a chance to work in cultures that maybe emphasize one or the other of, than those. For instance, in Latin America, very emotion, a lot of emotion, just make them cry, you know. If you're in the States, it is about doing. We are a doer people. And working in Europe, they're thinkers. Now, obviously, we're not made for just one of those. We're supposed to, our whole being is supposed to be wrapped around who, who God is and that we belong to him. So, what I would do next is i say, so where is this, what is this passage saying to you right now? Whether you're a believer or not, what is it saying to you personally? And I mentioned this morning that this was a part of the message that people, it would, it would, there would be a long pause because people have to think about it. Some of us have been raised in Christian homes where we've never thought of anything else but this. What I'm saying this morning is just repeating what you've already accepted. Um, but I will guarantee you that even Debbie and I, who were raised in a home probably similar to many here, when we got in a context where the secularism and the unbelief was so real you could cut it with a knife, it made us go back to the scriptures, say, do I really believe this stuff? Because all the people around me that are kind of like me, in other words, same economic class, the same level of education, think I'm crazy for believing. So what is a passage saying to me personally? And I want to suggest that you give some time to the scripture to soak in. But I'm also going to give three possible, um, three possible applications because I mentioned that it says he's Lord of creation, he's Lord of the church, and Lord of reconciliation. Christ being the center, we need to keep calm and believe. I had a situation recently where I asked a friend, a pastor friend, to give me advice because he knew more about a situation that I was going to encounter than I knew. Um, I, my question was to him, I've lived in Europe where racial prejudice towards people like two of the people in my family don't, doesn't really happen. The people who feel racial prejudice in France are North Africans, but not African-Americans or Sub-Saharan Africans. And this pastor friend is African-American. He was in an international church in, in Germany. And I said, Curtis, what happens when I get to the States what should I do if someone says to me, or I hear someone make a racial slur against somebody in my family? Because I'm not sure that my reaction to it is going to be the best reaction for them or anyone involved. So he told me, he said, you know, when I was 12 years old, we lived in Brooklyn, New York, and on the way home from school, someone used a racial slur at me. And he said, I got home, my mom saw I was very upset, and, he, and he, she said, what, what's the matter with you? And she, he said, well, somebody called me, uh, and he repeated the word. And she looked at him, and she said, hmm. Well, she says, is it true? And he said, what do you mean, is it true? Are you, and she repeated the word. He said, well, of course not, I'm not. She said, Curtis, if it's not true, don't waste any emotional energy on it. If it's not true, just let it run off you. If that upsets you that much, 
you're going to waste emotional energy on, on lies. This passage is saying, don't waste emotional energy on lies. If Jesus is the number one person, that's the truth. You hang on to that. You and I know that we live in an America that's changed over the last couple decades. And it's very conceivable in the years to come that persecution, we could know it. And it can get our emotional ire up. Hold on to the truth. Be calm and believe. Jesus is also um, Lord uh, of the church. Um, we like to be united. I'd like you to go forward to a couple pictures I have up there. Um, we like unity. We like, uh, there's Keenan on a, a soccer team he played with. Um, I think in our town of, uh, it was a little town outside of Basel, Switzerland, probably 25 kids in that soccer program. I think there were 13 different countries represented. And on the soccer field, nobody cared people's ethnicity or national background. They were just there to play the game. You can go to the next picture. This is a group we met on a boat. Sometimes we met in our apartment. You can see the diversity there. Um, and what was it? We were diverse from social economic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, and yet we were united. Um, because the number one thing between us was the blood of Jesus. That was the number one thing. You know, sometimes when, when somebody would come to me and ask me, um, they're interested in getting maybe intimately involved with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. You know, my only advice could be to them, you know, the problem is that the number one person in your life is not the number one person in their life. And sooner or later, one of you is going to have to live in the suburbs and the other in the city. Because if you get married, um, you who know Christ are going to have to put Christ in second place in order to accommodate. Or you're going to have to put your partner aside to go towards Christ. Because similarities in our cultural background or our interests can mask the huge difference between us. But this passage is also saying that just the opposite. The differences culturally between us or ethnically or economically can mask the huge similarity we have between us. I cannot think of a day in my lifetime where here in the States we have an opportunity to look like the church of Ephesians that Jesus always wanted us to, where the cultural, the economic, the ethnic differences are all secondary because Christ is Lord of the church. The most important thing between us is the blood of Christ. And finally, another application is that Jesus is the one who reconciles us. And I'll tell you what that means. That means that no matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, no matter what family you're from, you are not defined by that. You are defined by the blood of Jesus. Your identity is totally safe in Jesus. And it doesn't matter what your emotions tell you about the past. If you've asked forgiveness, if you've come to Christ, his lordship and reconciliation is lordship over you right now. Now, um, the last question I have is, who can you share this with? Uh, it's always a little bit tricky 
We want to be sensitive to people. So here's just a suggestion. Ask God who it is that needs to hear some aspect of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Um, and you might even do it in the form of a question. Um, you might want to ask a person, maybe somebody at work, somebody you rub shoulders with, uh, how can we be united when there's so much division going on? It might bring up an opportunity to talk about the lordship over the church. We can't expect the world to be united the same way the church needs to be united. Uh, you might want to ask somebody, um, how do you determine what's true? What is the standard? How do you determine that? Just see what they answer. Get into a discussion. Ask the Holy Spirit to take the discussion in a direction that you're able to talk about Jesus and what the Bible says. Don't be afraid to just say, well, the Bible says this. What do you think of that? Don't feel like you have to make it happen. Uh, make them believe. But just put it out there. I'm going to read one other passage from, uh, from Keller, and then I'm going to share one illustration, and then we're going to close. The next paragraph, after he talks about the three types of secularism, he says, um, individuals in, could profess not, profess not to be secular people to, and actually to have religious faith. Yet at the practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on their life, decisions, and conduct. This is because in a secular age, even religious people tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships, and financial options with no higher goal than their own present-time personal happiness. Sacrificing personal peace and affluence for, transcendence, trans, the, for transcendent causes... Uh, causes become rare even for people who say they believe in absolute values and eternity. Even if you are not a secular person, the secular age can thin out, can secularize faith until it is seen as simply one more choice of life along with job, recreation, hobbies, politics, rather than as a comprehensive framework that determines all life's choices. I want to make it clear to you, what I'm presenting to you and what I see scripture saying is that the option of following Christ is an all or nothing thing. It is not um, supposed to be, and I'm not talking about you have to become a missionary. <laughs> I'm just saying it is all about Jesus. Um, when I went to France, I noticed they dressed differently. Um, I remember... Um, I remember seeing guys carrying purses. Okay, they're not really purses. Um, I call them guy purses. So it's confession time. When I'm in France, I got a guy purse. It's really like a little saddlebag, and you put your wallet and stuff in it. Actually, it's more comfortable than having to sit on. So. But it took me a little time to warm up to that. Uh, I noticed these guys wearing what I call guy prees. You know, shorts, they kind of went just below the knee. Yep, that's exactly how I felt. <clears throat> and you know what? I still feel that way. I remember saying to one of my kids, saying, if you ever see me in one of those, just tell me it's time to go back to the States, Dad. <clears throat> the swimming pools don't allow us to wear trunks. If you want to go swimming, I, I invite you to come to France sometime with me, and we can go to a public swimming pool. You can buy a Speedo 
in the slot machine before you go in because you have to wear a Speedo in this. Yeah, I know, you know? <laughs> the adjustments we make for the gospel. But then there's other things you say, you know, I, um, you know, I can do, I don't have to wear everything they wear. And yet over time, um, you know, some things don't look as strange as they used to. And I'm at that stage right now coming back to the States and saying, you know, that, that kind of seems strange, but I bet in a year or two I'll be wearing that if I, we stay here. So a couple years ago, I, had nev- I don't wear a suit very often, uh, but I thought, okay, I'm due to buy something, and um, do I buy one back in the States, or do I buy one of those European cut suits? And I would say that, first of all, I acknowledged that they existed. Um, you know, they, they looked different. Um, they were there. Um, and then I kind of resigned to the fact that good people can wear those suits, you know. And slowly but surely, I started to accept the idea that maybe the next time I buy a suit, I'll buy a European cut suit. I never really liked them that much, but slowly but surely, it was growing on me. So I had a daughter's graduation coming up, and I thought, <clears throat> okay, well, I definitely have to wear a suit to that. And um, I want you to know, I moved from acknowledgement to resignation, from acceptance to embracing it. And I embrace this European cut suit. Do you know that in the Bible, it says in the book of Philippians that there are going to be people that have to acknowledge what we talked about this morning. It says in Philippians 2 that they will bow before Jesus. What I'm explaining to you from the Bible is saying this is the truth above the truth. It's the truth behind the truth. It is the ultimate purpose. And the Bible says that everyone is going to bow before Christ. Now, he gives us a choice. We can have to, ex- have to acknowledge it. We can resign to it. We say, well, you know, it's the way I was raised. I guess I got to go to church. I got to believe. We can accept it. But you know what the best is? It's to embrace it. And I want to encourage you, no matter what it is in your life that Jesus is calling you towards himself, embrace Jesus. You're embracing the truth, the person behind the truth, the person who defines truth, the person who defines personhood, the person who defines you. And the one you need the most is the one who's seeking to give you what you need in him. And I don't know what that means for you this morning, but what I'm presenting to you this morning is what the Bible presents as the truth. It's in Jesus. It's what we represent. And it shines in the darkness of Paris, France, and secularism, just as it shines in places like the Middle East, here on South Dakota. Embrace Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is Bethesda mb.org 
That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.